Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about workplace culture, psychology and life. Sorry there's not been episodes for a couple of weeks. I've been very focused on the launch of Fortitude, my book, and I'm delighted to say that it's currently in the Sunday Times bestsellers. It's top five bestseller in the nonfiction. Uh, so or I think it's called general category. So I'm thrilled about that. It's uh, It's been selling incredibly well. And some lovely comments this week, Ed Miliband described it as an absolute revelation. So there's been some uh, lovely comments. And look, I'd, I'd love to hear your feedback on it. I've been so thrilled. It's had about 25 star reviews already in the first week. So uh, firstly, people have been reading it. And secondly, I think people have been recommending it to friends. So, um, so I'm thrilled with the response there. And please do get in touch if you've uh, if you've read it. And actually, please do post a review on Amazon. These things, you know, you always hear whispers about um, the importance of reviews, but I think Amazon reviews are, are the big thing that determines the success of a book. And today's guest was actually featured on a episode maybe a year before COVID. So COVID plus one, what's that, three and a half years ago? And it's Professor Sophie Scott. Professor Sophie Scott really reached public acclaim and national attention when she did a couple of really high profile lectures. She did a a BBC lecture. She did a Royal Institution Christmas lecture. And she's done just a couple of other talks, largely about laughter and the importance of laughter. I've included the links to them. And I've also included the link to the episode that I did with uh, Sophie Scott at Adweek fantastic episode we had like sitcom writer radio dj we had a a brilliant panel on that and so i think you'll really enjoy that today uh, came about because i saw that she's got a brand new book out called the brain 10 10 things you should know explore the wonders of your most extraordinary organ it's a very readable book actually it's only brief but i think that's you know it's 100 odd pages but that's in service of you feeling like you can get to grips on it i tore through it there's one piece in it that I mentioned to uh, Professor Scott in the discussion that blew me away. It swept me away. It sort of had me thinking about it for days afterwards. And so you'll hear that. So, you know, an understanding of how our brains work, I think, is valuable to all of us. And I was really delighted to get the opportunity to talk to her. So 
Uh, here's my discussion with the author of The Brain, 10 Things You Should Know, Professor Sophie Scott. She's, uh, I'll probably give her a, a full introduction. She's a, a British neuroscientist and senior fellow at UCL London. And her research investigates the cognitive neuroscience of voices, speech and laughter, particularly speech perception, speech production, vocal emotions. Uh, you're going to love this because it's such an intriguing investigation and she's such a an articulate and, and energy-filled um, person to, to sort of take you on a journey. So let's go into the brain with Professor Sophie Scott. <laughs> Professor Scott, actually, can I call you Sophie? You can uh, indeed, yeah. Thank you. I'd love to, you to introduce who you are and what you do. My name is Sophie Scott and I'm uh, the director of the Institute for Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London. Cognitive neuroscientists are interested in the human brain, but they're interested in it at a level where they can kind of try and relate brain structure and function to people's behavior and people's experiences. So a lot of neuroscience is involving looking at, you know, molecules in bits of cells inside brains. And we're, we're a much kind of zoomed out level. So that's so intriguing. So talk to me through an average day. So, you know, how much of your time is spent touching brains? How much of your time is spent looking at brain scans? How much of your time is spent filtering through data? What's a neuroscientist do? Well, one of the nice things about the job is it's very, very variable. So sometimes, um, you know, I, I, if you're collecting data, then you can be spending the whole day just looking at people's brains. And we look at them with a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging. So it's non-invasive. People lie inside our scanner, but the scanner enables us to look at what's happening in their brains, both in terms of what the brains look like and how they're working. And that's fascinating. That's always interesting. That is never a dull moment when you're doing this. And analysing those data is also really, really interesting. So I've got a student at the moment who's been collecting some data. One of the things I study is laughter. And this student of mine ran a study a few years ago showing that if you add laughter onto the end of terrible jokes, people find the jokes funnier. And there's something the laughter sort of doing even though the laugh's got nothing to do with the joke, it's just been added on. And so she took that into the brain scanner and because we couldn't use jokes because they're too long, we used funny words, words that have been rated to be funny, things like flank. <laughs> <laughs> and then we um, added on, and they were, they were read by a comedian, Howard Reed, uh, so he was sort of saying them in a funny way, but there's just the word. And then we added on sounds on the end and sometimes the sounds were laughter. And indeed, when... You hear a word and then you hear laughter afterwards. You get a very interesting interaction between the parts of the brain that process hearing words and the parts of the brain that process laughter. And you don't see that if you just, uh, you'd never see that when people are just hearing words that aren't funny. So there's some, or sentences that aren't funny. So that, that kind of, you know, trying to work out what that means and interpret that, that's just, just delightful. That's really, really enjoyable. I'm really intrigued because I, I, I read something, a guy from UCLA wrote a book about the brain and um, I forget, but I read something recently, not long ago, saying that FRMI brain scanners, the one that you mentioned there, are only 20 years old. Mm. And so this knowledge that we've got about that is pretty recent. So I guess to some extent, you're like the, the Columbus, you're the conquistadors of the brain. Is that right? It's a bit like that. I mean, if you think about how long we've been looking at the heavens and asking questions about stars and then how that was improved with the development of the telescopes to where we are now with you know radio telescopes and telescopes in space, that's sort of been the journey for astronomy. And in contrast, we, we are at the early days. We've just got our telescopes in brain science. Wow. 
to be able to look in detail at brains that are working. Now, we've been studying the brain for longer than that, but it's really probably the entirety of what you'd think of as modern brain science is still only around 200 years old because for a long time people didn't even think the brain had much to do with anything. It's such a strange, dull little organ when people are dead. It's not It's not very easy to analyse, it's not easy to interrogate. And um, although people started to get the idea it was important, it was so hard to study it. So for very many years, the study of brain function was in humans largely largely limited to working with people where things had gone wrong. They had a mm. stroke or a head injury or surgery. And of course, that's still a very important part of brain science. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of that kind of work. Um, but it means that you get a very, you're sort of seeing one side of the picture. You're seeing this is a brain after something has damaged it. And that's not the same as saying this is a brain just doing its thing. And that's what the new techniques let us do. We can just say, okay, what does the brain look like when you're reading? What does the brain look like when you're listening to music? And of course, that's just been a revelation. Is it getting better as well? Is it in the same way that our iPhones are getting better? Are these scanning devices getting better year to year? Definitely. We're getting much, much better in terms of the resolution we can achieve. And the scanners that we're using are bigger and bigger and they enable us to take much finer sort of grained images so the the resolution at which we can image what's going on is getting better and we're also getting better in terms of developing techniques that allow people to move around because of course these huge brain scanners that you insert somebody into they're great for many things but it's hard to look at say somebody walking or navigating a real environment or having a conversation with somebody if they're in that kind of very unusual environment so we're also getting better brain scanners that are likely to be properly wearable at some point in the future and then you really can look at people moving freely and then you start to get at something much more aligned with what people's normal lives are like and it lets you ask questions about things where you really need to look at people in places and with other people that will be much easier right so rather than like putting them into these enormous submarine style devices yeah and which is all still great and that's what i do and that's brilliant and people have done lots of fantastic work with that but yeah so i've got i've got colleagues who do masses of work on spatial navigation and they have people sort of moving through you know 3d gaming environments to look at how people navigate space and that's amazing and it's, it's produced some fantastic science but you just know that if somebody was actually walking through that space you would get lots of other mm. brain areas activated mm. as well. So that kind of what you're actually using when you mm. navigate in the real world is likely to be even more complex. And we and we need better scanners to see that. Help us navigate the brain a little bit. What's it made up of? The thing that I was swept away by is that as someone who doesn't really understand, you know, as layman's take on science, I, you often hear these quotation saying well every cell in your body's replaced every 200 days or you know you know you're a completely different person today than you are at the age of seven but for the brain that's decidedly not the case right you dealt a set of cards mm. and that's your lot it is quite a, it, it's it's humbling really to imagine that you've got as an adult almost every single brain cell that you have any neuron that you have you were oh. born with and that is absolutely extraordinary so if you think about What that means, everything that happened in your development from when you were a baby and in your lifelong changes as an adult, all of that's happening not because you've grown new brain areas, because the brain cells that you already have have formed new connections, they've lost or gained connections. The patterning of connections across those 86 billion brain cells that you have is what underlies 
all of that growth. And there are other, there are other changes that happen when you are very young. So your brain is still literally growing; it's getting bigger. So the, your, those brain cells are growing within the within the skull as well. But it, it is sort of it's almost like the body is this ever changing host <laughs> that's containing this continual brain. So when they used to say at school that every time someone hit you on the head, you'd lose 10 brain cells, that was it. You were losing them from your 86 billion. I'm sure that was bad science. <laughs> I mean, I think we don't know exactly, but we do know that it's it's certainly not a good idea to get struck on the head. There's sort of concerning data for, if you look at sports where people do routinely get hit on the head. It's, it's not good for the brain. Um, so it's definitely the case that you've got a limit. You've got lots of them, but that's a limited number, and you probably want to look after the ones you have. I love the fact that the word for cortex, the, the outer sh- shell of the brain, is is the same as tree bark. Is that right? Or like it means the same thing? And that, right, okay, yes. I can immediately yeah, recognise yeah. that. So what happens, if we were touching a brain, is it is it like a mozzarella? Is it like... Um, is it like a blancmange? Is it like a... Yeah, it's more like a blancmange. It is distinctly sort of... Uh, soft and watery it's not a it's not a solid structure and in fact if you look at the history of brain science a lot of the early development of brain science was trying to find ways of making the brain solid so that you could then cut it up and actually ask questions about it um, so it's un, it's very unlike the many other organs which have got some sort of structural integrity there really isn't much to the brain such that it really is inside your skull it's floating in cerebrospinal fluid at the top of your brainstem, which sort of goes down into the, the spine, the spinal cord. If there is damage to the skull or to the cerebrospinal fluid that it's floating in, the brain will start to suffer quite quickly because it needs that to be supported. What really struck me was that, you know, you've got this permanence of this 86 billion cells that you're gifted at birth pretty much and that's what goes through but there's immense plasticity to it so whether that is you know a taxi the sort of famous thing of a taxi driver's hippocampus getting bigger or someone who's deaf getting some degree of the ability to detect these the sonic echoes of the rooms they're in the brain seems adaptive even though it's fixed and that seems like such an interesting contradiction to me Mm. it it is it's very hard to sort of imagine the power of this but any one of those 86 billion neurons can form many connections with other brain cells around it now some of those will be over quite long distances and are facilitated by the brain cells are odd and they've got these very long projections so sometimes that's a result of that but otherwise it's often quite close by projections that are making connections with other brain cells and that's why over time lots more of those connections are formed those brain areas themselves will actually start to become larger because of all these little connections are building up and that's exactly what you see so in the hippocampus of the taxi drivers the hippocampus is a part of the brain that's like I mentioned before, very important in navigation. That's what a lot of people study when they're looking at navigation. You really need a hippocampus to help you get around the world. And if you do something like learning the knowledge, which London taxi drivers do, they spend two, three more years learning all the roads in London and how to get through them. So it's a very, very detailed spatial knowledge that people acquire in adulthood, which is important. So this is after your brain's finished most of its sort of formation of an adult brain. It's those connections within the hippocampus that are leading to it being larger in the taxi drivers. And it is really interesting if you can actually take taxi drivers who start the knowledge, people who start it, and then compare people who complete the knowledge and those who don't complete it, 
the text, the people who complete it have got the enlarged areas of the brain. So it's not just a sort of people who are interested in this have larger brains to start with in these areas. It really is the learning that's underpinning this plasticity. I was really intrigued uh, by how your understanding of human brains can be enhanced and supplemented and complemented by looking at animal brains. And and this was mind blowing for me. But one of the things that I was really taken with is this idea that you say that if, if we ever want to imagine what alien life forms are like, um, then looking at octopuses might be quite helpful. And, and I don't know if they fall into this group that you, you mentioned something else, which is that humans have got a bilateral, is that a, they've got a bilateral brain and, and there was something that happened six, 600 million years ago that a lot of animals went into this. Do octopuses fall into that? And talk to me a little bit about what we can learn from octopuses. So the, there's some really interesting differences between humans and octopuses. So humans are bilateral in our symmetries, like, like, like lots of animals. So we're kind of down a midline our our left and our right sides roughly mirror each other and the same is true of our brains now um, an octopus that comes from the same basically order of animals as slugs and snails and they're obviously very different from slugs and snails they're much more complex they've got more complicated bodies they still have these brains that sit like in slugs and snails actually around the mouth so they've got a brain that sits there sort of like the here on us But then they also have other brains. So at the base of each of their eight tentacles, they have an independent brain that talks to the other brains and to the central brain. But it also means each tentacle can be working completely independently of the others and investigating the world and solving problems. And that gives them this extraordinary complexity in how they can engage with things. If you ever want a happy half hour to calm yourself down on YouTube, I recommend just going into YouTube and saying, looking for octopus solving problems because <laughs> it's quite extraordinary and to watch how they do it now look we're almost completely the opposite we are incredibly good at focusing attention on one of our effectors our hands or our feet most people can't do something different with both hands at the same time we're not we're not like an octopus and that's become from our brain being focused and just one brain controlling everything right that's so intriguing so you're saying if we were to meet aliens they're they're possibly far more likely to have different sort of uncentered brains that i mean it's because most animals are like us like humans with this kind of bilateral symmetry and that kind of gives and and like a head at one end um we sort of that that that's how we end up with our brain sitting up here because you have your you know you, you've got if you've got a front of something that ends up being where it's a good idea for the eyes to be and often where it's a good idea for the mouth to be and then if you're going to start having more complex brains underpinning all or neural systems underpinning all this it makes sense for that to be close to the front so it's near to the eyes and the, the mouth so we end up with something that's just generally the pattern for many animals on earth but it has other consequences, I think, for how brains work. And if you imagined a world where it was everything had kind of spread out from octopuses, then we, brains would largely be very, very different. And they would relate to these different bodies and these different possibilities of the bodies. Would you see it as our brains are us and our brains run this organism around us? Or are we, our whole bodies, us and our brains are just part of that? Because one of the things, it might be a nonsensical question, but do you get what I mean? Sometimes when you you see these little mm-hmm. parasites that take over insects and the parasite is running the insect, it's like, okay, the parasite's in charge. And our brains, 
like, um, you know, all the way through your work, it's like you see all of these things that stimulate, that activate, that reward the brain, you know, cortisol, these endorphins, various things. And I just wonder if the brain's running us to earn these things. Is that a stupid question? Well, no, it's a, I mean, it's probably working in both directions. So certainly if you damage the brain, then you will, that is where behavior changes will come from. If people can cope with, you know, this is a trivial example, but a few years ago I broke my right arm and within like a day I was able to have a go at applying eyeliner with my left, my unpreferred hand because because a brain plasticity could kind of underpin this. We can work around lots of stuff as long as our brain is intact. And our brains are just extraordinary plastic. Um, but it's not the case that our brains kind of operate like a you know, like a brain in a jar that happens to be housed in a body like this, because a lot of the ways that we process the world um, does relate to the characteristics of how our bodies work. So a really trivial example is, if you get people to tap out a rhythm, they will normally tap out a rhythm, just tap on a table, around 600 millisecond gaps. And that's, you know, it, and that's often, a, it feels like a kind of lively tempo. A lot of, you know, a lot of music kind of sits around that. And in fact, that's about the rhythm of walking. And actually, if you look at how people hear rhythm in sounds, if sounds are too close together, we don't hear a rhythm at all. And if they're too far apart, and they don't have to be all that far apart, we don't hear a rhythm at all. So actually, where we hear rhythms happening seems to accord with the, the temporal characteristics of what it actually takes to move one of these bodies about. So I think that kind of, there's a lot of these different relationships between how our how our bodies are continuously shaping how our, you know, how our brain's process information mm. and your question was a bit more complicated because it was about free will in terms of what's sort of driving what's going on and at one level yes our brain is like the parasite in there but it's also um it's influenced by the state of the body and in a way that is continuously interacting so we now know very well in psychology that the relationship between sort of physical health and mental health is not a trivial one and how these things interact if you there's a, you know, if you're in chronic pain, you are more likely to have a low mood to feel bad and your brain is working differently. So there's definitely that interaction as well. You can't separate the brain out and just think of it as sitting in its physical host in a way that's unrelated to actually the, the experience and nature of that physical it, host. It, it strikes me that, you know, that related to that is like the importance of connection and the the importance of us feeling socially connected to other people, rewarded by being around other people. To, to what extent is that an also an, a vital component of how the brain works? I think it is. And we haven't evolved, our brains haven't evolved to be on our own. We're social primates. And in fact, if you look at uh, people's social networks, so that's just a sort of the number of people that you know, the strength of the connections you have with those people. It's an incredibly strong predictor of both physical and mental health and even a sort of likelihood of death. And that's not because those people exist in a in an abstract way. They're the people that you talk to, the people that you spend time with. And we know that in those interactions, people do feel more relaxed and they're happier when they're getting just to gossip with a friend and possibly even hopefully laughing with that friend. And that's a great way of regulating your emotional state and reducing stress. And that's what our brains have evolved to do. We want that contact with other people, both in terms of 
literally, sometimes your friends have got your back and can physically help you. That, you know, so I can call somebody up. I've got a problem. I need someone to help me now. Friends can do that for you. But even when they're not doing that, people that you hang out with, people that you talk to, acquaintances that you have, they are doing you good by providing you the opportunity just to have social interactions. And that's really, really, really important for our brains. There's something in your book that stopped me in my tracks, which is this idea that the biggest predictor or the biggest thing in relation to the onset of dementia is unchecked, untreated hearing loss, which I guess goes to the point of what you said there, the more connected that we feel to other people. And the moment we start diminishing those incoming signals, it... it's. I spent 10 minutes just thinking about that very fact. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. It is absolutely extraordinary. So this is work that's come out over the past sort of 10, 15 years or so. And if you look at, there are many different risk factors for dementia. Some of them you can't do anything about. There's a genetic contribution and that's, there's nothing, there's that out of your control. But if we look at the preventable, preventable uh, risk factors, hearing loss in adulthood wow. and it not being corrected, it's, this, it's a 10% increase in your risk of, start, of, of developing dementia, which is enormous. Mm. That's worse than smoking and being mm. overweight and being lonely it's terrible so and it seems to be exactly like you say because if you experience hearing loss and of course because your ears have moving parts everybody over the age of 40 will start to show a decline in their hearing all of us and if you have an occupation that places you in a situation where there is more noise you are at even more risk of that happening so there's there are these, these moving parts, they wear out. So we're all at a bit of this risk. And if you don't get your hearing checked, or if you get your hearing checked and you get a hearing aid and you don't like it and you don't use it, then this is where you're suddenly really at risk. And what it, because what you experience is that people talk in a really muffled way. They don't make sense. It's hard to hear what they're saying. You go to the pub, you can't understand what everybody says. So you don't, you stop going, you stop going to clubs, you stop going to situations where you would have all these social interactions with people and all the other things that are good for you that you'd have in those experiences that you know the actual activities that you're doing you start withdrawing and that is the really really risky point so um and again you can see many things that are fed into this it's not you know if you want to get political uh, hearing aids for many nhs trusts in the uk stopped being funded several years ago they're now like glasses something you, you get entirely sort of independently and that all of these things kind of add up along with sort of social stigma about wearing them and the fact that, that you do have to get mm. used to them. It's not like putting on glasses. You have to learn how to hear with them and you have to persist with that. And all of these are reasons why it's quite easy to not to fall through that gap. So if you think about the number of people that could be potentially affecting it, it's really, really worth us taking it seriously. Yeah, and it seems so emblematic, actually, of social connection that it, it's just giving us a mere pointer. It's the... It's the iceberg tip yes. at the top of the ocean because it's saying anything that disconnects us has far more impact on our mental well-being than you might imagine. So even though it's like, it, for me, it's just like a road sign pointing uh, the, the, the huge pothole that's, that's ahead. Wow, it, was, it blew me away, that did. No, you're absolutely right. It, it, is, it, it is just a glimpse of how important this is, absolutely. And if you look at the other end of life, if you look at babies, they are born knowing about things that are social. They are born knowing about faces. They are interested in faces. So they open their eyes and they want to see faces, which is extraordinary. It really is. That's, that's no, they hunt the first thing they, they don't know about faces, but they know that, you know, at some point in our genetic code, that is something that they are 
program to look for and they understand eye gaze and they listen out for voices and pretty much everything that you learn like learning to talk when you're a baby you learn in interactions with other people so it is we, we our brains all the development that's going on in our brains through that period is completely happening in these interactions as well so it's a it's an absolutely lifelong thing Tell me, you became sort of so renowned in people's uh, consciousness and, and sort of held a fond place because the work you'd done on laughter and the, the way that you, you brought that to people. How much of your work now is spent looking at things like laughter and, and social connection? A great deal of it, really. Um, I, um, I have PhD students working on laughter and, uh, you know, in the eternal quest for funding that we are engaged in as scientists, I am continuously trying to get more money to look at this because it's it's getting better now. There are more people studying it, but it is extraordinary how little we know about laughter. We know very, very little about the development of laughter. We know we have, again, like pointers, as you say, kind of glimpses of how important it is to adults in terms of things like managing social interactions and friendships and stress. But there's actually very little empirical data. So it's there's so much work, so much more work to do. Because I'm so intrigued with the relationship of it. I, I think, um, you know, the, the Robert Provine stuff and the stuff that you've talked about, Robert Provine talks about how people laugh at things that aren't necessarily funny and it's all a signal of safety and connection. I've, and I've heard you talk about very much the, the same things. And the thing that struck me about the last two years is that I suspect most people have laughed less. Maybe we're getting back to a bit more of laughter, but certainly they were in the yeah. depths of pandemic. When we were working through screens, you just laugh a bit less, partly because the lack of synchrony. So you might be laughing and then someone else will hear the joke a second later. And there seems to be something in synchrony that is enriching and the absence of synchrony is immediately jarring. What do you think, how do you think our relationship with laughter has changed in this sort of slightly differently connected way? I think it's been a huge thing. So you can have, I mean, almost immediately people started using, you know, computers and tablets and phones to have face-to-face interactions. But as you say, very, very few of them, they're, they're all correctly focused on getting the speech clear, which is great. And often many of them, if one person starts talking, everybody else is, you can't, they, if they make a sound, it won't be heard or it flips over to them and the speaker can't be heard so that means that laughing together is very very difficult to do Mm. and very hard to share and there's lots of other things it's hard to manage eye gaze it's hard to manage the space in the room but I think it's particularly bad for laughter because laughter is a social behavior you're 30 Robert Provine found 30 times more likely to laugh if you're with someone else than if you're on your own and it does seem that when you are with other people, it's not just the laughter itself that's important, but it's sharing the laughter. It's laughing at the same time where you really find the special stuff happening. So even though you could be having a very positive interaction with somebody in a face-to-face, you know, computer-based environment, even if you are both laughing at the same time, it's very unlikely that you can hear it or have a sense of it really feeling shared, which is means I think you're just less likely to get that kick from it yeah and certainly I mean this is a trite example but at the start of the first lockdown you know my partner was working from home I was working from home my son was homeschooling and I said right every day 5 30 we put away all the computers and we sit down together and we watch something on television that's funny as long as we'd found it funny and, and that was solely so we would have a reason to sit down together because it was it was really stressful at the start wasn't it it was hard and you weren't getting it, any of these interactions so right. sitting down together and having a reason just to share laughter we still do it that's something that's still happening I really value it and um and I wouldn't have thought to do that if I hadn't read 
all this work around what this, what work there is on the fact that it's not just the laughter it's sharing yeah, it that really matters yeah it's so true and it, it's it's something it, it's interesting what you say because along the way you've said that you know you get these 86 billion brain cells and babies kind of self-educate themselves by these little nature driven triggers of eyes and faces and sounds and so the way that by the time we reach adulthood we're programmed to react to laughter is so now ingrained in what we're doing. And so, you know, if you or I were out somewhere and I did all my laughing two seconds out of step with you, within 10 minutes of having a conversation, it would become stilted. It would seem like this is this is weird. And, and yet, in the digital environment, the, the sort of encumbrances of the way that we communicate digitally means that that's become the reality. And, and it just, as a result of that, it just doesn't feel as mm. strongly bonded. I'm so intrigued what this means for teams in the future who are fully remote. In fact, those teams, all of these companies are fully remote. They often say, we're not fully remote. We get together once every three months for a sort of uh, a, a pagan burn up and, and sort of gathering around a bonfire and a chat together because they seem to recognize that the, that synchrony that's achieved face to face is irreplaceable. And mm. um, the relationship with laughter as a result of that, I'm just so intrigued with it. No, totally. I think, um, I mean, as well, if you think about how many, how different people's experiences were under lockdown, if you were on your own, you would have even less opportunity for laughter because you wouldn't get to do this sort of finding a way to share it with the people that you were with you know and that does I think have a cumulative effect you do it's easier to not laugh when you've been laughing less so it's you know laughter primes laughter and the opposite is also true so I think that's that's something that's you know important at a sort of you know societal level probably but as you say I think for, even for people who now say well we can never come back we're going to do things differently they know that you need that human contact and the way that, you know, if you could find a space where people are not only together, but they're laughing together, that really is telling you something. It's like laughter is an index of the nature of those relationships. And it's a very mm. important index to pay attention to and also to create spaces where it can happen. I mean, you don't want people in the workplace just laughing solidly all day long. They won't get any work done. But the little bits around the edges before and after meetings, which, again, you don't get when you're having it all online, where you catch up with people and you laugh and you gossip – that's probably the most important part of your day in terms of actually maintaining and making new contacts with the people that you have to work with and you need to work as a team with. So that's it's worth, I think people need to value that a lot. You merely saying that. Quite often, sometimes I'll speculate about friends I know or their, their relationships or their partners, and I think do you think they laugh together? And it's like in the same way that I might have speculated about far more salacious things when I was a kid. Now me wondering, does this guy ever laugh? He's like me trying to work out how they function in a function in a, a normal way. It's just such a human part of the way we live, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, we care a lot about it. I mean, it's interesting in that there's so little scientific study of it. People, people do like it. People will go out of their ways to try and, be in places or with people where they know that they will laugh. 
it's it's special to people. Just final thing. I know we're running out of time. Final thing. If there was one thing, as someone who's who's immersed in all these things, if there was one thing that you could learn, discover, as I was going through your book, I was thinking like, was there a moment in evolution that's like you'd love to understand what happened there? Or okay, was- yes, I can. So I haven't gone into this in the book at all. But if you look at the evolution of humans, a lot of the things that we think of as being really human, they're in place in things like the Narakatomi boy, who's a sort of a part of a, he's a human precursor. He's, he's, he hunts with tools. He was clearly a, an, a gr- graceful runner. He was able to you know, move upright and with speed. He was living in social communities. People in those communities were caring for each other. There's evidence of sort of fossil skeletons of people who died of things that had, like, had presumably had some kind of uh, arthritis, but people cared for them. They wouldn't have been able to hunt. They were looked after. So a lot of things that are in place that look very, very human hunting together, doing, you know, a a community living together, but they weren't talking. And we can tell this from what's happening in their spinal column. You get an expansion in the spinal column associated with the ability to breathe, to control speech. Now, there was something else binding them together. Maybe it was laughter, but they weren't, there was no language there. And I would really love to know what happened in the brain, if there was something that happened in the brain, that not very long later and not all that differently in terms of physical properties gives us modern humans Mm. because we start talking but we also start making stuff and doing things and the cave paintings and inventions all of that kind of appears around the same time and i would love to know what that is because there's something distinctly different about modern humans and as far as we can see there's been no further evolution of our brains whatsoever since that point Mm. but if we could get to that Actually, that kind of that that talking, that creativity, that singing, that making art. Yeah, I would and, love to know. and was it something that was um, genetically created, or even I, I, fascinating? To how long ago was that? So, modern humans originated in Africa within the past two hundred thousand years. So, this is recent. We are recent, and we've changed the world a lot since we've been on it. We are extraordinary predators. We've built things. We've invented things, but not always for good. Um, but that's a tremendously fast yeah. sort of movement and it's likely come about. Um, our bodies contributed to it. You know, we have this amazing control over what our hands can do. We've got phenomenal control over our over the, the, the muscles that we use for speaking and breathing when we're talking or singing. But that's, that has to have happened in pace with brains and I'd really like to know what that was wow uh, it's been a wonderful conversation i'm so grateful for the chance to chat to you and best of luck Likewise, with the book. thank you thank you that's so kind thank you so much thank you thank you so much to professor sophie scott the book that i was struggling to remember was social by matt lieberman i also highly recommend i loved that book um highly recommend that book uh, i'm so grateful for Professor Scott to take the time to talk to me and like I say there's lots of more resources in the show notes if you're interested in that I've got quite a few episodes lined up so hopefully you should have new podcasts in your feed for the next few weeks thanks lovely to have your company today see you next time hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.